Hello and welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson. The Head Shepherd Podcast is brought to you by NextGen Agri. At NextGen Agri, we're focused on livestock and genetics and technology, those three subjects, and that's what we'll cover here at Head Shepherd. They're the three things that we love talking about, the three things we love learning about, and the three things that we work with our clients on. So you can expect to hear from both myself and the team here at NextGen Agri, as well as leading experts that work across those three aspects of livestock production. Hi there, Ferg here. You're listening to the Head Shepherd podcast. Great to have you with us. Really excited this week to have Alison Van Enenham, who grew up in Australia but has spent most of her career in, in the US, in California. Alison and her team have been working on gene editing in cattle for, for a number of years. Gene editing is a really exciting technology that hopefully one day we'll get to use in mainstream agriculture. And I won't pretend to uh, explain it. That's why I've got Alison on, on the line. So we're really looking forward to, to interviewing Alison today. Welcome back to Head Shepherd Podcast. Really excited this week to have Alison Van Enenam with us today. Welcome, Alison. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for inviting me on. Almost got that pronunciation right. <laughs> I've heard worse. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I guess we'll start off with how an Australian ended up in California and the, the journey you've been on till, till now. Yeah, um, well, I've lived here about 30 years now. Um, so I originally came over here um, to do the senior year or the fourth year of my agricultural science degree at the University of California. And I met a professor here who asked me back to do a master's and I kind of never left. So that was kind of, uh, I guess I got a I got a, a missus degree along with my master's degree and then I was uh, kind of married to an American. So I did my PhD and stayed on at Davis ever since. It's, uh, it's a good combination. It's a lot of eucalypts. It's kind of like Australia, um, but uh, is, a, is a really wonderful university and I've, I've loved my time at Davis. It yeah, cool. certainly gets nice and hot and dry, so you'll be feeling, feeling at home. Yeah, <laughs> a few less sheep. That's the only thing that differs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Alison, I remember where I was the day I heard about CRISPR. Um, it's one of those like lady die events for me, um, as in yeah, the power of, of gene editing. I guess um, that was because of the promise that it that it holds. Can you, for the for the non geneticists uh, listeners out there, can you explain sort of gene editing in a in a nutshell? Yeah. So gene editing, is, it's kind of become famous recently because of CRISPR, but it's been around actually about 20 years. Um, and there was some kind of older style of editors that were on the scene, zinc fingers and, and tailings. But basically, to really simply put, it's a pair of genetic scissors that you can tell to go and make a cut in the DNA, the double-stranded DNA, at a particular location in the genome. And why do you want to go and cut the genome? <laughs> because you want to perhaps inactivate a gene that perhaps makes an animal resistant or susceptible to disease. Or you might want to go and um, alter uh, a variant of a gene to one that's maybe in a different breed. So maybe you want to bring something like um, polled or hornless in from Angus into the dairy cattle breeds so that they're genetically dehorned instead of having to physically remove horns to protect animals and their handlers. So it's just a really fancy pair of genetic scissors. Yep, cool. And and exactly, so we generally are shifting around bits of DNA that already exist in the species. So that's how it differs from what is classified as GMO. 
Yes and no. So I, I get a little nervous at that distinction because GMO doesn't mean anything. So, you know, I would argue a chihuahua is genetically modified relative to a wolf. Um, so I think what you're asking is relative to genetic engineering. Um, and so historically, genetic engineering, which gets labelled as GMO, is moving uh, genes potentially from a species that isn't sexually compatible with the target. So, for example, moving a, an insect pro protective protein from a bacteria into a corn plant to make it insect resistant. And that was done using uh, kind of uh, just much more coarse mechanisms. So we didn't have the precise scissors. We just kind of threw the gene in there and, and hoped it, in, it kind of rammed its way into the genome somewhere or another. So there was, there's a couple of subtle differences there. So that's the, the uh, gene coming from a different species and then also it's not targeted as to where it lands. But you could technically use editing to bring in a gene from a different species, but you, it's typically the, the, the targeting is what's different from kind of old-fashioned genetic engineering, if you will, um, because you can go in and, say, okay, that allele of, or this variant of this particular gene on chromosome 6, this is exactly where I want to go and make a change. And, and the change can be something as simple as a single base pair change. So, of course, DNA is made up of A's and C's and T's and G's. You can go in and switch a T to an A, and that might make the protein subtly different so that you get a particular outcome you want. And that's what animal breeders typically do. Um, and it really allows um, a lot more precision in, in how we might go around um, improving our genetics of our livestock species. Awesome description. And yeah, thanks for pulling me up on, on my bad lately. <laughs> certainly, certainly don't want to be the one fueling the, the GMO fire. Obviously, that's been a, a significant challenge in any, any molecular geneticist's lives. Where are we at in terms of legislation? Are we any closer to having gene editing enabled for, for mainstream ag? Um, well, uh, it depends where you live. So unfortunately where you live, um, I believe that they have considered that all gene edits are going to be regulated as if they're genetically engineered um, and same with Europe. Um, however, some countries uh, have a different approach. So, for example, Brazil and um, Argentina and South America have basically said that if the change that you achieve using genome editing could have been achieved using conventional breeding, so, for example, the polled allele from, from Angus going into Holstein, you could achieve that by mating an Angus bull on a Holstein cow, but you'd get 50% of the beef genetics now in with your Holstein and you'd have kind of this hybrid animal that's not ideal for either industry. But you if you go in and do that type of an edit with editing, they're not going to consider that to be any different to traditional breeding. And so it's kind of setting up this um, asynchronous regulatory uh, approach where some countries and livestock industries will have access to this technology and others won't. Am I right in assuming that it's hard to pick up if it's been bred in through 30 years of breeding versus edited in? Most, mostly that's a true statement. So, you know, if you look at old-fashioned genetic engineering we were discussing earlier, the, the plant um, genetic engineers are a pretty um, non-innovative bunch. So they tended to use the same set of um, on switches and off switches, which gave a piece of DNA segment that was easily identifiable using this molecular technique called PCR, where you can go in and say, does this have this piece of the transgene? Because all, all of the 
corn varieties that I'm looking for have it. And you had an identification approach that was quite easy to implement. And so you could do kind of tracing, but with genome editing, so let's just say I go in and change an A to a T on somewhere in the 3 billion base pairs that make up the bovine genome, it will be identical to if that naturally occurring variation is also in other animals in that genome or in that species, sorry, then there's no real way to be able to differentiate between a T that's been introduced through editing versus a T that's occurred through natural mutations. And so it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that because it might be, for example, that let's just say you never normally see the, the allele for not growing horns in a Holstein if it's suddenly rocked up there um, in one animal in a homozygous form, I guess I guess my spidey senses would go off a little bit. But there are some naturally occurring Holsteins that have long ago been mated with Angus that carry the polled allele. So it's not unheard of, but probably the surrounding DNA would look a little different. But it would be it would be very complicated and certainly not as easy as identifying um, old fashioned transgenes, if you will. Yeah, cool. I don't think I've ever met anyone that explains molecular genetics as well as you, so it's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic to have you, have you on. Uh, tell us about, about Cosmo. He's the, the latest latest star in, in your lab. Yeah, so he's our latest lab member. Um, so he is a genome-edited um, bull calf uh, that was born in April. So he timed his uh, arrival with the middle of a global pandemic, so that was quite exciting because uh, we were – a bit short on the necessary supplies if we did have to do a cesarean section because we needed all our medicines for human patients. So it was a little bit uh, nerve-wracking. But anyway, bottom line is that he is a a bull that is carrying um, a gene insertion that is a gene called SRY, the sex-determining region on the Y chromosome. That's the name. And you're probably familiar with the fact that if you inherit a Y chromosome, then you'll be male. And if you inherit an an X chromosome from your father, you'll get XX and be female. And so we've known that for a long time. And there's actually just a single gene that triggers the development down a male pathway, and it's called this SRY. And so we were interested for terminal sire purposes to see if we moved that gene hypothetically onto the X chromosome or really any chromosome and expressed it in an, in an XX individual, would we be able to trigger male differentiation? Because if so, you could potentially have an, a, a sire, a terminal sire, if you had SRY on the X chromosome where all of his offspring would be male because he'd either get the SRY on the Y chromosome or the SRY on the X chromosome. That was kind of the idea behind the project. Cool. So he, in theory, he'll pass on SRY to all of his progeny, no, to half his progeny. So he'll end up. Yeah. So as it as it happened, and this is this this is probably a longer story than a half hour podcast can cope with because <laughs> it's about five years of of endeavor and and failure and despair. But we ended up um, putting the gene onto a what's called an autosome, which is just a non-sex chromosome. So it went into chromosome 17. And so Cosmo would be expect half of his offspring are going to be boys because they get the Y chromosome, right? Then the other half will get the X, but half of those will get the chromosome 17 with the SRY because he's heterozygous. The other chromosome 17 doesn't have the SRY. And so they're the ones we're really interested in. So they would have the SRY from chromosome 17 and the XX genotype. And so that 
will be that that kind of the outcome finally of the experiment is when Cosmo matures sexually, we can get some um, semen from him and breed him and produce XX individuals carrying the SRY, then we'll we'll know whether or not that's true. And and if it's true, in other words, SRY makes an XX individual appear male, then we're done with our research. And if industry wants to to apply it, then it would be, you know, kind of an industry partner or developer that would potentially move it onto the X chromosome and and develop terminal size that produce 100% male progeny. And why do you want boys? Well, because boys are more efficient at uh, converting feed to gain. They're more fuel efficient, if you will. And they tend to finish heavier. And for a terminal cross where none of those uh, offspring are coming back into the herd, 100% male would be the preferred calf crop if you could achieve it. It's it's kind of a little bit like sex sorting semen, but you're kind of doing it in the bull, I guess, if you will, to produce yep. a male offspring. So with that process, you can't do the opposite? You can't make them all female for a laying hen or...? Well, it's funny you should ask that because my friend Mark Tizard at CSIRO in Geelong in Australia is trying to do that for layers. Um, And so they have a different sex chromosome structure. They actually have heterogametic or ZW. um, So in in mammals, XX is the the sex that's female, whereas in chickens, um, it's, it's the other way around. And so he's trying to make all female layers so i don't know if there's something to be said there like so he's a guy trying to make all females and i'm a girl trying to make all males <laughs> so there's probably some weird psychology behind all of that way too way too deep for this podcast out of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool so that is possible in birds but not in mammals uh, well, you, you never put it past us. So there's, there would be different approaches that you would take to try to achieve that. Um, and so it, it depends a little bit on the industry. So like for the dairy industry, you can sex thought semen and that actually addresses that problem where you, you want the females. Um, but with natural extensive service industries like sheep and, and beef, it becomes more difficult to implement a technology like that. So if you could get a genetic solution to produce the preferred gender, then that would be, you know, what you'd like to do if, if at all possible. Yeah, cool. New Zealand is claiming that they're going to be predator-free by 2050. So if we could create, if all the rats and the possums and the stoats and everything here had Cosmo's technology, can we control pest populations through through gene editing? Yeah, well, you, you can if you allow it. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are, you know, different approaches there. And I actually have a New Zealand postdoc in my lab at the moment, um, Tom Bishop, who's uh, working on doing some different uh, innovative approaches to um, single-sex offspring. But, yeah, I think absolutely there's potential there. Um, and I guess to me I always look at, well, what are you doing now to take care of the predators? And <laughs> as I understand it, there's a fair bit of poison that goes out to, to kind of take care of that problem. Um, and so rather than just prohibiting all genome editing from solving that problem, um, then is that is that better than the poison approach? I guess I always kind of look at the trade-offs and pros and cons and I, I get very nervous when entire technologies are arbitrarily kind of prohibited without looking at the use that they're being put to and the, and the risks and benefits because um, you might end up with an outcome of doing nothing that's actually worse than doing something. 100%. And I think, I guess, where I view gene editing is that all of the things that we would replace first with gene editing are all either painful procedures or uh, um, yeah, or poisons or chemicals required or or antibiotics required. Like we would target all the 
disease traits, things that we're dehorning cattle, all those things that would be the prime targets for something like gene editing, yet uh, we don't get to use them. Well, a disease resistance, I think, is a really kind of, to me, a, a, a nice um, trait to go after. So you may be aware that they've used genome editing to inactivate or knock out a gene in pigs that makes them susceptible to um, this disease called porcine respiratory and um, reproductive syndrome virus, so PERS for short. Uh, and that's a really big disease problem in, in Europe and America and China. And that one doesn't introduce any novel DNA. It just basically knocks out a gene. And so that could be achieved using just conventional breeding. I mean, the reason that we all look different to each other is because nature's been genome editing our genomes and um, that's why, you know, you and I look different to each other. And it's it's kind of ironic to me that if it's intentionally done with an express purpose of trying to make a pig no longer susceptible to a disease, that that is somehow off limits. But if nature did it, that would be fine. Um, and I, I think there's kind of this um, purity that's given to nature that, you know, nature's sometimes makes pretty nasty diseases, including one that's affecting the entire human population at the moment. So I guess I, I'm not one that thinks there's a distinction there. And I, I look at what, what are the risks and benefits. And to me, disease resistance is one that easily is justifiable from a animal welfare and antibiotic use and sustainability perspective. Yeah, for sure. So I assume you're under a fair bit of, Cosmo's under a fair bit of security is he so he's not allowed to enter the food chain in the u.s so he has okay. to be so i didn't really mention the u.s regulatory approach because um it's kind of perplexing to try to explain it and i guess have been fairly outspoken about not being a big proponent of it but the way that it's being regulated is as a, a new animal drug and so he's actually now a, a unapproved animal drug and so the understanding is that any intentional alteration alters the form or function of an animal and therefore is a drug. And so it falls under the same kind of general rubric as, I don't know, ivermectin or, or dog wormer, right? And so I, I have a hard time thinking of genetic variation as being a drug because I, I kind of think that I, that must make us all high because we're full of genetic variation. And, and that's what breeders their entire life is selecting beneficial genetic variations to produce the next generation. <laughs> and yet if it's intentionally done, then that makes it a drug. So he actually uh, has a little added uh, bell and whistle that I haven't mentioned yet, which um, we actually added a what's called a reporter gene to his uh, insert. So not only did he get SRY, he got this thing called GFP, which is a green fluorescent protein. And so... <laughs> Technically, he's also um, potentially would be a, a green fluorescent bull if we got him in the right light and uh, there's just not a big enough disco that's open at the moment for me to take him out and see what happens. But um, that technically uh, came from uh, a non-bovine species, actually a jellyfish. So we knew that he was going to be regulated as a drug and so we figured, well, we may as well make our lives easier because what that allowed us to do is when we were transferring the blastocyst or the embryo at seven days of age, we were able to just flash it under a um, blue light and we could see whether the insertion had occurred. So only about 40% of our edited embryos get the insert. And so the only ones we transferred to recipient um, cows were the green ones. So we were <laughs> kind of doing green eggs and ham or green eggs and beef, I guess. Uh, and so that always uh, made him not eligible for the food supply. But 
you know, we're a research lab, so that's that's not a deal breaker for us. We need to do the proof of concept at the university, and then if it works, then it's our industry uh, partners or or anyone that chooses to commercialize it that then would try to probably knock it in on the X chromosome and not include uh, green eggs. So and the GFP gene. So it. So yeah, he's he's a pretty special guy, and and I must admit that we were kind of curious if he did grow glow green, right? So people think that he's going to be autofluorescent so he's not like you know he's not going to be a glowing christmas light out in the field and he's a black hided um, calf but he does have two white trotters on his back hooves and so the curiosity got to me so <laughs> i got with one of the guys out at the feedlot and we have a toilet up the back of the beef barn that's an enclosed toilet with a like a wooden door and so we put up some cardboard over the window and then we kind of wrestled the calf into the toilet this guy and I and closed the door and I was thinking God if, if I ever get seen doing this it's going to raise some very unusual questions but I had a light from I have some glow fish which are these are genetically engineered glow, uh, green fish in my house so I took the lamp from their aquarium and took that into the toilet with the calf and um, we shone it on his back hooves which are kind of more white than the than because of the white socks and it was like unimpressive, I guess. Yeah. It was really hard to tell and it was unclear. It was autofluorescent and I didn't really want to go and get a control calf and, you know, wrestle him into the toilet as well. And so I'm, I'm sad to say that so far that's been a miserable failure and um, it's been very disappointing because I was kind of excited. We actually were really wanting to do red fluorescent protein because we would actually have Red Bull and you know you might have some some corporate sponsorship opportunities, but uh, <laughs> we ended up with Green Bull. But he's a very unimpressive Green Bull, unfortunately. Sounds like you have a lot of fun in your lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were pretty happy. We have worked hard to try to get this ball in, so it was a pretty uh, cool day when he arrived. But he was due on March thirty, and he ended up being a whole week late, and uh, that was a a tense uh, week waiting for him to arrive because the last thing that we wanted was um, to to have birthing complications, but he ended up coming out just fine. So that was. And so great. for the article I read, he was sort of the last the last chance of the last chance for the for the project, or is, is that just a Hollywood version? Oh, uh, once we had him confirm. Well, yeah, I mean the project we've already had. You're allowed to get so it was a three year project, and the USDA allows you to have a one year extension with no problem and then under duress they'll give you a two-year extension but there's no way on earth you can ever 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 get more than that and the project finishes at the end of this month so <laughs> it's like we were we were stretching it but obviously we've known he was coming because the pregnancy was established last June um so you know when we first saw we had a pregnancy we didn't get too overexcited because we've lost uh, a couple before and then um when we did the 70-day check for gender and we saw that well he was male that that was no big surprise we already had the blue balloons bought for the gender reveal but we if you know once they make it to 70 days then that's usually you know you can tell friends and family at that stage although of course we didn't tell anybody um and then so yeah we were we knew we had him but yeah for the graduate student who's research dissertation it's he finishes and starts a postdoc and so it's it's just a nice ending for for that student to have an outcome where you you got what you were trying to achieve after five years of work and uh, you know he's micro injected so many 
oocytes and collected so many uh, ovaries from from the slaughterhouse it's as to be you know it's it's a real um, impressive feat of perseverance to to actually end up with with the product very much so i don't i don't think anyone that has never done research understands that the level of uh, yeah anxiety associated particularly when you're doing something like that but generally in research we're doing lots of repetitive boring stuff to hopefully get something amazing <laughs> almost every all of its repetitive boring stuff that's what's always so funny is it's like oh that must be so exciting it's like yeah actually not that much most of the time but um i think what what blows me away is like we're we're in there at the genomic level editing at you know under a microscope with micro manipulators and then we we get what we think we, we want you know a little flash of green light and then we go out to this 1500 pound cow and throw it in and hope for the vagaries of the reproductive cycle of a recipient heifer to take our research onwards <laughs> so it's a part it's a strange partnership but there's so much out of your control that it's just like please please reproductive cycle accept my offering <laughs> <laughs> so true yeah so what's what's next for your lab is there any new ge type projects underway or yeah, we've actually got a couple of other genome editing projects um, that we're working on and uh, we're trying to obviously improve the efficiency. Uh, so one one animal every five years is probably a little little slow even for, for an academic lab. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we're trying to, rather than micro-injecting oocytes, which takes a fair level of skill, we're trying um, doing some things with electroporation where you can actually introduce the editing reagents to a number of, of oocytes at the same time or, or actually zygotes they're one cell embryos which would if we can do that it opens up the the technology to a lot more people because a lab you know could technically have that at, a, at an et station or a, you know a, it, you don't have to have this really i mean basically the good micro injecting people are people that have played video games all their lives because that's kind of the type of micro manipulation that you're doing that that's what makes you good as a micro injector whereas the um i mean even this old boomer could probably operate the electroporation machine without any trouble <laughs> like we have a competition in the next door neighbor where we have to um sail little boats around the pool and we race and i tell you what if you put my age group with my my kids age group it's <laughs> boats run in the wall and go run into each other whereas the kids that know how to use the controls they they absolutely whoop us uh, it's it's kind of sad to watch yeah no, i regularly get smashed uh, by my eight-year-old on anything like that yeah <laughs> excellent so yeah so some Continuing on down the gene editing line in, in the lab for sure. That's the plan. Yep. Excellent. So there is some genome editing work that's being done in New Zealand. So you may be familiar with the fact that um, there was a group at Ag Research that knocked out the beta globulin gene in dairy dairy cattle. So that would basically remove the me- the major milk allergen. And then they've also done some work to produce um, a knockout that results in light-coloured cattle for um, potential um, better heat tolerance. And that group at Ag Research recently got a grant for, I believe, $10 million to continue their work in genome editing in cattle. So there is some uh, research work being done. Of course, that's all under containment and the like. But um, you know, it, it it's unclear exactly what will happen to the regulatory 
landscape in New Zealand uh, because you're different from Australia at the moment. So Australia, uh, they don't um, consider knockouts. So those are the where you're basically inactivating a gene but you're not inserting any new DNA. Uh, they don't consider those differently to traditional breeding. And so there's even a strange dichotomy between now the Australia and New Zealand and yet you have the the one food standards agency for ZANs. And so I, I think there's some potential regulatory disharmony even um, between the, those two neighbouring countries that, that could create um, situations where you've got animals developed in Australia that, um, uh, you know, have a, a knockout trait that would be desirable but they, I don't know, what, what they wouldn't be allowed into New Zealand or whatever would happen there. So um, those, those are the things that worry me about kind of global trade and, and disadvantaging one country's livestock producers um, by not allowing access to technology that their competitors have access to. And so that's a concern uh, not only for New Zealand but for Europe and, and I would argue for America as it relates to animal editing as well um, because, as you well know, this is a, you're very much dependent on global trade and if your competitors um, are able to use genetic innovations and you're not, that, that potentially sets up a problem. Yeah, and it certainly, as you know better than most, it, it gets all sorts of emotions flowing when you talk about what should be allowed and what, what shouldn't be. But It's interesting to me that, um, you know, certain breeding methods trigger a lot of angst and others don't. And so genomic selection, which is an amazing technology, but it, it got introduced in a fairly short amount of time. It had been adopted less than a decade. It was adopted by the global dairy breeding industry. And there's now literally millions of animals that have been genome selected. And it effectively doubled the rate of genetic gain in the dairy industry, um, which is like a really big impact and nobody really cares too much about genomic selection, which of course is just basically looking at the genotypes of animals. So it's not altering things directly, but in terms of its impact on the overall genetic um, structure of the dairy herd and the rate of genetic improvement, it's got these really huge impacts and there's not much public discussion around that. But if you go in and make a single SNP change with genome editing, then you've got all of these different regulatory approaches. And so it, it, there's not a lot of logic to it to me because um, I think that all breeding activities have impacts um, for better or worse and pros and cons and risks and benefits, and yet only some are considered to be you know, incredibly risky uh, and others basically get no regulatory scrutiny at all. Um, so it's, it's not proportional to the risk and it doesn't make a lot of scientific sense. It's, it's very political at this stage. And um, I think one thing I've learned in science communication is once it gets political, then the scientists may as well just go home and have a beer because uh, your voice is no longer important as, as we may learn uh, in this country with, with the mask, the mask debate that's going on at the moment. It, uh, yeah, it's, kind of horrifying to watch from a from a scientist's viewpoint how misinformation and and politics and ideology can drive very nonsensible outcomes and I, I think where if if that's not evident to people at this particular juncture in history I, I'm not really sure when it ever will be <laughs> yeah 100 percent. I think I was I think I was in the US for the first time I heard that science is just another opinion which obviously scared the hell out of me but it is fact it, it should scare the hell out of you because if, if we're not basing policy on evidence, then it's just a competing blob of world views and life doesn't go well once that starts happening. 
Well, we could talk for hours, Alison, but I uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks very much for for coming along. It's as I said before, you you communicate some pretty complicated science in a really in a really great way. So, I really appreciate your time today. All right. Well, thanks for inviting me, and uh, good luck with your podcast, and um, good on you guys for getting rid of the the Rona. Awesome. Thanks for that. Well, a great chat there with Alison Van Eenham. Really interesting to talk with someone who's right at the leading edge in terms of molecular genetics and and with that mindset about what that can the good that it can do for for the industry i'd be really interested to follow allison's lab and to see where that technology goes so that's uh that's been episode 11 here at, at the head shepherd podcast uh again thanks so much for all the great feedback we're getting uh we really do enjoy it we've just hit over four thousand downloads uh as we as we record this one which is which is great for our first uh, 10 episodes so this is uh, episode 11. We've got another one, episode 12, which will round out this uh, season. We'll have a couple of weeks break and then be back into it. Uh, as this one has goes to air, we'll be down at Twizel at the Next Gen Muster. We've got 55 young people from the sheep industry getting together to, to do a bit of learning and get to know each other and, and have a bit of fun. Uh, so as this hits the airwaves, that's where we will be, which will be, which will be great. Just a, a reminder that August is is uh, online education month here at Next Gen Agri. We've got lots of courses uh, on offer. I encourage you to go to www.nextgenagri.com to check out those courses under the courses section, a range of different levels there. We've got uh, some good sign-ups, so really looking forward to getting into them as of uh, as of the 3rd of August. And a final reminder from us that it's very close to ram selling season. In fact, it's underway in Australia remembering that good information helps you make great decisions and the decisions you make around genetics are, are long-term. 10 years is the kind of time frame you would expect that the rams you buy this year, the impact they will still be having on your business. So take some time, get some help, make some good decisions. It's, uh, it really is a critical time of the year for, for those sheep producers in Australia in particular who are buying buying rams at the moment. And that's it. That's a wrap for episode 11 of the Head Shepherd podcast. You've been with Ferg. Thanks very much for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers.